ladies and gentlemen, the official kickoff to our world, to our brand new course called Outsmarting Anti-Semitism. Yes, there may be a little baseball on my mind, but only by way of joking and humor because, right, God invented, what is it, DVR, TiVo, whatever it is. There are ways to tape these things, so certainly you can tape. Who's using tape anymore? Anyway, there's certainly ways to, uh, <laughs> to catch the game. Anyway, the way it works in sports, especially baseball World Series, the game's going to go upwards of four hours. Trust me, I may not be a prophet, but I am uh, knowledgeable in these things. It's going to go at least three and a half hours, four hours, which means you'll catch, you know, by 9.30, you'll catch the, the best part of the game. So don't worry, everyone stay with me, because what we're going to explore tonight is arguably, can't say for sure, arguably more important than game one with the Braves, with the old Bravos in this series. Okay, if you're not from Atlanta, you're probably like, get to the class already, don't care about the Braves. Nonetheless... Let's get rolling. Okay, so this course is a very special course, and it's a very important course. Now, why do I say that? I say that because um, I say that because the course deals with a topic that is exceedingly important. Okay, give me a second here. I'm going to mute everybody just to have a nice clean background. By the way, throughout the class, feel free to unmute yourself and jump in and be part of the conversation. But for right now, we're keeping everything. Nice and quiet. Okay. Um, give me one second. There we go. Okay. So the topic tonight is very important, and I want to tell a story to get us started. The story goes that there was an anti-Semite, a Jew hater, who walks into a bar. And he walks into the bar, and he sees, hold on. There we go. Just a little... Croy. He walks into a bar and he sees, I said the word bar, I thought about drinks, I have a seltzer here. All right, we're, we're moving forward with that. He walks into a bar and he sees right next to the bar, posted up, you know, like basketball, posted up next to the bar, he sees a Jew. This guy hated Jews, but he sees a Jew. He's seething with anger, he's a real anti Semite. He says to himself, I'm really going to get this Jew. Oh, I know what to do. So he decides, he does the following. He says to the bartender, bartender, a round of drinks on me for everyone in the bar except for the Jew. Oh, ho, ho, wow. Did he show the Jew? But the Jew heard this. He said it really loud. So the, Jew the Jew heard this and smiles. And he says, thank you. The anti-Semite's really upset. All right, everyone has their drink. They're all happy. He's the hero. And the next thing you know, the man decides, the anti-Semite decides he's going to get the Jew again. If that didn't hurt, this is going to hurt. He says, a second round of drinks for everyone in the bar on me except for the Jew. No drinks for him. Once again, the bartender says, sure. The Jew smiles and says, thanks, man. And the guy is seething. He doesn't know what to make of this. He's freaking out. I'm trying to get the Jew, and the Jew is not being gone. What's going on? Turns to the bartender and says, what's with this crazy Jew? He's Meshuga. The guy's nuts. The guy's off his rocker. What's going on over here? I'm buying drinks for everybody in the bar except for him. Why is he smiling? And the bartender says, yeah, because he owns this place. <laughs> Thank you. Sherry with the rim shot. Because he owns the place. Okay, making business. Another story. Story takes place shortly after 
the assassination of the Russian Tsar Alexander in 1881. There's a government official that quickly makes his way over to the, to the Jewish quarter. And he goes to the rabbi and he says to the rabbi, he says to him in a very accusatory tone with a pointed finger, he says, I bet you know who's behind the assassination. And the rabbi says, actually, I have no idea. But I'm sure the Russian government is going to blame the Jews and the milkmen. And the government official says, why the milkmen? And the rabbi says, why the Jews? This is, yeah, these are two anecdotes slash jokes about anti-Semitism. So here's what I know. I know that from the beginning, since the Jewish people became a people, there are two constants, two things that will always be there. Anti-Semitism and jokes about anti-Semitism. But the truth is that you and I know that anti-Semitism is not a laughing matter. Our history simmers with the ashes of anti-Semitism and Jew hatred. Persecution, forced conversions, expulsions, executions, auto de fas, crusades, the Inquisition, pogroms, the Holocaust. We're just 75 years or so, a little over 75 years, removed from the brutal and systematic murder of 6 million Jews, including 1.5 million children. We've seen it all in our history. We've endured it all. And this is, this is painful. Just when we thought that maybe, maybe, maybe the world finally gets it. Maybe humanity would just have Rahmanas. You know what Rahmanas means? Rahmanas means a little compassion. When we thought that maybe humanity would have a little Rahmanas and give up hating and targeting the Jew. When we thought maybe, just maybe, the world was on board with what has become the Jewish slogan of never again. When we thought maybe the world finally will give up its hatred of Jews. We've been reminded in very direct terms that that simply is not the case. Anti-Semitism is horrifically and inexplicably alive and well. Anti-Semitic incidents have been rising in the recent past. Remember the Tree of Life Synagogue in Squirrel Hill? I know that with us tonight, my mother, who's in Pittsburgh right now, and a number of you have connections to Pittsburgh, family from Pittsburgh, originally from Pittsburgh. I grew up in Pittsburgh. The Tree of Life Synagogue, the anniversary of which is tomorrow, October 27th, three years ago was the shooting. Three years ago tomorrow was that tragic and horrific act of violence in Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh. And remember Chabad of Poway near San Diego. These are recent incidents, big incidents, horrific incidents of anti-Semitism on U.S. soil. And along with, and these, these, just a few examples of the, the, more, the, the more public or the more uh, prolific, use the, word prolific the, the, the examples of anti-Semitism that, that garnered a lot of press. Unspoken are the many, many, many smaller acts of anti-Semitism that you and I and others have faced. And along with rising anti-Semitism, along with the rising number of acts of anti-Semitism, is the rising fear of anti-Semitism. Many Jews 
simply do not feel safe. Many Jews are looking over their shoulder. Many Jews are thinking what happened to this country that we thought was a safe place for Jews to live. And it's not just this country. It's overseas. It's in many countries. We're suspicious of just maybe exactly where our society is heading, and it's troubling. So here's what I did. And you may know what I did about a week ago. Um, I sent out an email with a three-question survey about anti-Semitism to a few hundred people. I wanted to take the temperature of the community in advance of this course because I wanted to see like, what's, what's our Atlanta and beyond, what's the in-town Jewish Academy community thinking and feeling about anti-Semitism? I asked three very simple questions, three very basic questions, um, and the results came in. I sent it to a few hundred people. We got back a pretty decent number, a pretty decent percentage. We got back over 55 responses to the survey. And um, I know some of you here responded. Some of you are, are part of those who responded to that survey. And of the people who responded, listen to this number, 92.7%. I would say that's a pretty staggering number. 92.7% of responders said that they are concerned that anti-Semitism is on the rise. 60% of those who responded to the survey said that they have personally experienced anti-Semitism. Some of you who responded wrote their per personal stories and anecdotes. I'm not going to share any personal details, but I wanted to share the, the overall numbers. 92.7% of those that responded said that they are concerned about the rise of anti-Semitism or that anti-Semitism is on the rise. 60% have personally had some sort of anti-Semitic experience in their own life. It, I, I, I knew the numbers were going to come back. I was, I, I'll, I'm just being very honest. I was, I'm surprised that the numbers are, are quite that high. I did not think the numbers would be that high. But what, I, what I've learned from this is that clearly, clearly, anti-Semitism is a problem that we're facing, that we're all facing. And we're rightfully concerned. So this is why it's so important to get together to talk about anti-Semitism. This is why these four sessions, these four weeks that we have together, are very important. It's a very important topic, a very important conversation, and I'm glad we're having this together. The course that we're in right now is called Outsmarting Anti-Semitism. And you might have wondered about the name Outsmarting Anti-Semitism. See, the objective of this course is to understand what makes anti-Semitism tick. What makes anti-Semitism tick? And, perhaps more importantly, what can we do about it? So over the next four weeks, we're going to look at the history of anti-Semitism, the psychology of anti-Semitism, the danger of hate and the danger of fear, modern forms of anti-Semitism, and we'll also explore Israel-related anti-Semitism, which is a very big topic unto itself. And as I said, perhaps most importantly, we're, go we're going to discuss what you and I can do today to outsmart anti-Semitism. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, a blessed memory, brilliantly said that anti-Semitism is like a virus that is constantly and continuously mutating. This is a theme that we'll revisit in our subsequent classes. I don't want to get too far into this concept of the analogy of anti-Semitism to a virus. But Rabbi Sachs explains and beautifully that anti-Semitism is a virus that is constantly mutating. So... 
relevant to the course objective. Our goal in this course is not necessarily to learn how to completely eradicate or eliminate the virus, but perhaps more, more specifically, how to inoculate ourselves from its potency, from its potent harm. We may not get rid of anti-Semitism altogether, but how do we become stronger? How do we become stronger and less vulnerable to the dangers of anti-Semitism? How can we outsmart? If we can't outrun anti-Semitism, how can we outsmart anti-Semitism? That's the objective of these four sessions of outsmarting anti-Semitism that we're going to spend together. So friends, I am so glad that you are part of this conversation with me. So let's begin. So in future lessons, in the next few weeks, we'll talk about where anti-Semitism comes from, the rationale of anti-Semitism, how, how we might be able to reason with an anti-Semite and bring them over to a better place. But tonight, we don't focus on those areas. Tonight, I want to talk about the psychology of hate and the psychology of bullying. Hate and bullying. What, is, what drives hate? What drives the bully? So I want to open up this question to everybody. So get your finger on the, uh, the unmute trigger. And here's the open question. Why is it? What is the goal of bullying? What is the objective? What does the bully want? What does the bully want? Jump in. It's an, a bit of an open-ended question, but I want to get some feedback. What does the bully want? Good. To make the victim feel less so that they can feel more. Good. What else? What else? Goals? Object what, what does the bully want? Power. Power. Good. 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 Yeah. What else? Attention. Attention. Attention in another area. Good. Good, good, good. What else? What Dominance. Is the... Dominance. Good. Nachon. Correct. What else? Maybe also the bully wants some of what the victim has. Like, like the bully could be jealous. Right, right. In the case of the classic school bully, maybe some lunch money, right? But I, I'm, I'm only, right? So, but something that the, that, the, that the victim has. Good. What else? Yeah, that's what happened to me, so I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To instill fear. Oh, to instill fear. Good. Good. What else? Attention. Attention. Good. Any, anyone else? Yeah, Morris. I think people delight in cruelty. Delight in cruelty. Yeah, we would hope not, right? We would hope that uh, human beings wouldn't be wired that way, but... Our experience tells us that it's not always, uh, we don't always get what we want with people. Okay, I want to focus on one of the elements that were mentioned because hatred, the psychology of hate, why people hate, why people bully is a very big topic, which we will get to throughout this series. But one, one mention, one idea that someone mentioned a moment ago, I want to focus on, and that is that a bully sometimes, sometimes wants to instill fear within the other, derives a perverse pleasure, derives a power, some element of power from the fear of the victim. 
This might be how we understand the idea of terrorism, right? What is terrorism? Terrorism is, the goal is to instill terror within the other, right? To instill fear, to have a person or a community or a society looking over its shoulder. Remember, I'm sure everyone here remembers 9-11, right? Remember 9-11 and, and, and the, the days, weeks, and months that followed, even till today. There is a fear. How do I know there's a fear? <laughs> I just was at an airport. I was at an airport. I have to take off my shoes. Why are we taking off our shoes in the airport? Yeah. You ever wonder why we started taking off our shoes? Remember the, yeah. shoe, remember the shoe bomber? Remember that guy who tried to light his shoes on fire? We're operating out of fear. I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm not, getting, I'm not weighing into yes, no, or, or, or in the middle. That's not, I'm not getting into that. I'm just saying that there is a fear from 9-11 terrorism that still is in place today. We have protocols that are driven by the fear of something like that, something like a shoe bomb, etc., happening. This is a fear that is absolutely driving the protocols and behaviors that we are all living with. Nachon, correct? Yes? You can see it? Okay. Well, my mother nods yes, so we're for sure good. Okay, now, so, um, fear. The goal, a goal of bullying is to terrorize the victim, to get in the other, one, the other person's head, to make them fearful, to make them anxious, to make them weak. And with that anxiety, with that fear, they, the other party, the other person becomes vulnerable. And that constitutes victimization. There's a powerful quote from the Talmud. There's a really powerful quote from the Talmud that I wish to study together with you. Um, I'm going to pull it up on the screen. Now, here's the deal. One second, before, before I share my screen, just a, a quick note. Um, everyone who has signed up, who has signed up for the course, um, has hopefully received the book. If not, it's in the mail. If you're signed up as trying it out, well, after tonight, you'll sign up for the course and you'll get the book sent out to you ASAP. Um, if you have a book, you can follow along with a book and you can read the additional readings and look at the charts and the graphs, which we're not, I'm not spending time on all of the details. There's a lot of information. So you have plenty of reading material before and after in between classes. But I do want to share the core text, the core sources with you, which we'll go through together. So without further ado, I'm going to share my screen. And, uh, and let's, let's take a look. Let's take a look at what's going on um, from the Talmud. Okay, give me a moment to pull up the correct text. One second. Hold on, please. Okay. Okay, here we go. We're going to start with text number two. Don't worry, we'll get, back, we'll get back to text one at some point. But let's start with text number two. Adina Malka, please get us started with this quote from the Talmud entitled, Anxiety Drawbacks. Please read. It is stated in the book of Ben Sirah, do not allow anxiety into your heart, for anxiety has killed the mighty. King Solomon said the same. If there is anxiety in your heart, squash it. So this is what the Talmud says. The Talmud, first, let's go through this Talmudic statement. Number one, it's quoting from the book of Ben Sirah. Now, um, you may be familiar with uh, Tanakh, with Jewish scripture, with Jewish literature. 
And if you are, you'll know that there is no such thing as the book of Ben Sirah in the canon of Jewish literature. It's not like one of the 24 holy books. Has anyone, let me uh, stop sharing for a second. Has anyone heard of the book of Ben Sirah? Right? What's that movie, Ben Hur? Was that, was that a movie? Ben? Yeah. Yeah. No relation. No relation. This is the book of Ben Sirah. Who's Ben Sirah? Who, what, where, when? Who's this, who's this dude, Ben Sirah? What, what's going on over here? So I need to tell you what's going on. Ben Sirah is a book that was written by Jews in the times of the Second Temple, a book of Jewish philosophy, a, a book of wisdom that never became included in the canon of Jewish scripture, never became included in the collection of classic Jewish texts. It wasn't deemed to make the cut. Nonetheless, the Talmud quotes it because there are some passages that have Jewish authentic value to, Jewish, uh, yeah, authentic Jewish value to them. One of them is the one that we had in that, in that quote, which says, Do not allow anxiety into your heart, for anxiety has killed the mighty. What a powerful statement about the dangers of fear. Who was it that said there's nothing to fear but fear itself? Was that FDR? Yeah, yeah. FDR. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. In a similar vein, although that's not exactly what it says, anxiety has killed the mighty. You can be strong, you can be tough, but with fear, fear erodes. Fear erodes confidence. Fear erodes strength like, like few things. It erodes like, it from like the... Like King Saul. Like King Saul. King Saul, right? King Saul killed himself. I mean, he, 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 he drove himself to his own demise because he was paranoid about young David who would become King David. There's a story about Maimonides that one time, it's a complicated story, but also the idea, not with him, but with someone else that he knew, this person basically drove himself to death because he was afraid. He was paranoid. He was fearful. Fear can drive a person to the grave. That is the, that is the power and the detriment, the detrimental power of fear. Um, and then the Talmud quotes from King Solomon from Proverbs, which is one of the 24 Jewish holy books. If there is anxiety in your heart, quash it. That means that if you have a trace of anxiety, work to suppress it, work to eliminate it, work to push it down because fear and anxiety is so, is so devastating, is so sneakily um, um, powerful, which is our first idea, the first big idea with regards to anti-Semitism. This is the first big idea that I want to share, and that is, that if we want to defeat the terrible virus that is anti-Semitism, that's great. But you and I cannot operate out of fear. When you operate out of fear, you cannot think, you cannot process, you cannot be aware, let alone outsmart the enemy. If this is outsmarting anti-Semitism, we cannot be operating from a defensive, from a, a, um, a reactive place of fear. It's not going to work. We need to be strategic. We need to be mindful and strategic when it comes to defeating and combating anti-Semitism. There's no place for panic. This means that obsessing about anti-Semitism can actually work to our detriment. Again, I'm going to say that again. Obsessing about anti-Semitism, hyper-focus on the problem of anti-Semitism can actually work to our detriment to hold us back from being able to find solutions, combat and outsmart anti-Semitism. Sure, 
of course, we need to know what's going on. We need to be aware of the threat and the challenges. We need to, we need to have our eyes open to the state of affairs today, to, to, to the threat of anti-Semitism. But that cannot become our whole reality. We cannot be consumed by that. Think about it. The bully wants you to identify yourself as a victim. The bully wants you to identify yourself as the one being bullied, not as who you are as a person, but as a victim of a bully. That keeps them, that keeps that power dynamic. They're the bully, you're the victim, as long as you identify in that space. So the more you see yourself as that, as, a, as the victim, the more that is and becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The anti-Semite in assembly wants the Jew to see him or herself as a victim of anti-Semitism. That's the goal. The goal is, I mean, the goal is also to hurt the Jew, but the goal is also, in a, in a very strong way, that the Jews should feel as victims. They should feel victimized and vulnerable and scared. That keeps the power dynamic right where they want it. So the first step, the first step of breaking out of the clutches and the cycle of victimhood is self-empowerment. It's knowing who you are outside of the bully victim experience. Does that make sense? It's knowing who you are outside of this power dynamic, of this, of this horrific power dynamic. This is a critical element, a critical first piece of the conversation when it comes to combating and outsmarting anti-Semitism. We need to start who we need to start thinking about who we are as Jews outside of the experience of anti-Semitism. In other words, when the Jewish experience and the Jewish conversation becomes focused solely on anti-Semitism and victimhood, it simply does not serve us well. If the entire conversation of Judaism is Holocaust, never again, anti-Semitism, reports of hate, ADL, if that's the entire conversation about Judaism, then it means we are self-identifying that our entire being is wrapped around this posture of victimhood and victimization. And that's simply on every level not healthy. If a, chi if a child is, God forbid, being, bull being bullied in school, there are, there are different approaches that can be taken. One is to go to the bully and to shout at the bully and you're terrible and you're bad and you're wrong. Yeah, and kick the bully out of school and suspend them, all that stuff. Call the parents, call meetings, yeah. And then there's another, there's another approach. How do we communicate to our child if, God forbid, they're being bullied? Yeah? That they are strong, that they are capable, that they are nothing, whatever the bully's saying is not true. How do we communicate to the child about their own self-worth? Does that make sense? So yeah, you can focus all the attention on the bullying and the bullying and the bullying. And, and what's the message to the kid, to your kid? The message is you're being bullied. You're being victimized. And that, that, that defeats, that deflates, that deflates the self-worth of the child. Or we can focus on, it's not either or, it's not a zero, it's not one over the other, it could be both. But when we focus on the child and say to the child, you have to know who you are. You're a strong person. You're a capable person. What they're saying about you is not true. This is the truth of who you are. You can build up. You can build up the child so that when somebody says something not nice, I know that's not true. That's a joke, right? I guess we're all laughing at that, right? Because that's not true. And I understand not all forms of bullying are the same, right? There's saying not nice things about someone, and then there's physically harming someone, and those are two different experiences. 
But in general, generally speaking, when we focus excessively, when we focus exclusively on the anti-Semitism, we do ourselves a detriment because we don't focus on ourselves as far as who we are. I'm gonna, I'm gonna share. Hold, hold on, hold on one second. I just want to tell you what to give us an example. Hold, hold on, hold on one second. Let me share. Let me share a, um, a, a statement, a quote from Deborah Lipstadt. Deborah Lipstadt, as I'm sure we all know, certainly our Atlanta folks know, Deborah Lipstadt is the famed Emory University professor, Holocaust historian. She's been brought on by the current administration in the United States to be on, the, uh, on the, uh, the Council Against Anti-Semitism, the National Council Against Anti-Semitism in the U.S. So she writes about this theme that I'm, I'm trying to express in her latest book, Anti-Semitism, Here and Now. Let's take a look at what Deborah Lipstadt, Professor Lipstadt writes. I'm going to share my screen with you, and let's, uh, let's read this together. Um, it's going to, go back, going to go back a little bit, back to text 1A, one second. A lot of graphs. You see, if you have the book open, there's a lot of reading material. Okay, hold on. Let me find this. Hold on, give me a moment here. Okay, text 1A. Uh, let's ask, let's ask, um, let's ask Joy, please, to read. Text 1A. Let's ask Joy to read text 1A. Uh, Dr. Maxi, if you can please read text 1A if you're there. Most Jews will immediately step forward when Jews anywhere are being attacked by anti-Semites. This is, of course, as it should be. What is regrettable, however, is that for some Jews, the fight against anti-Semitism becomes the sum total of their Jewish identity. Recently, a much-respected Jewish communal leader lamented to me that he regretted not having educated his children about Jewish traditions and culture. He was, however, very proud of the fact he had embedded within them a total intolerance of anti-Semitism. His kids were prepared to be at the barricades to do battle against this hatred and many others as well. His comments made me sad. Anti-Semitism has become the drummer to which his family's Jewish identity marches. They know, of, they know of Jew as object, not subject. In other words, what is done to Jews becomes far more significant than what Jews do. This well-intentioned Jewish father has deprived his children of a rich and multifaceted legacy. They have been taught to see themselves mainly as perennial victims. This cedes to the oppressor control over one's destiny. It leaves many Jews, including this man's children, aware of what to be against, but not what to be for. Thank you very much. This is, in my opinion, a critical and powerful reading. Again, Deborah Lipstadt, Antisemitism Here and Now, published in 2019. Um, it's a powerful uh, passage. A, uh, amidst a, a, a larger, powerful idea that she's developing. And the idea here, in short, is that it's when, we're, when, when anti-Semitism becomes the focus of education and identity, well, there's a few problems. Number one, all you know is what you're against, 
I'm against anti, well, what am I for? I, I know what's not okay, but what is okay? What is, what am I, what, what, who am I? I? And it moves the person away from being a, a subject to being, to being an object, right? You, you and I are the object of anti-Semitism, but who are we as subjects? Who are we, what, who, are, who are we and what are we about? That we're not talking about. So this is the danger of a hyper-focus on anti-Semitism. Now I know, the irony is that I'm saying this in a course that's focused on anti-Semitism. But as you know by now, the title of the course is Outsmarting Anti-Semitism, which means that we're not going to take the typical approach. We're not going to take the typical approach to the discussion about anti-Semitism. This is going to be a little bit different. So we're talking about anti-Semitism, but we're talking about how focusing on, what, on, on, on the ills and the evils and the harm Focusing solely on that doesn't work to our, to our benefit. It doesn't work to our children's benefit. It, it, it moves us away from who we are as to what's happening to us, and it disempowers us. It, it, it keeps us in the posture of victim. We are the victim. We're always the victim. Every year we have all these thousands of anti-Semitic um, incidents that happen, so we're the victim, victim, victim. And, and it's a very disempowering uh, philosophy. Take a look at, at this same idea as captured... By, uh, by another writer, this is Bar Barry Weiss, text 1b. I'm going to read this. The Jewish people were put on earth, sorry, the Jewish people were not put on earth to be anti-anti-Semites. We were put on earth to be Jews. That is what she said at the Solidarity March, January 5th, 2020 in New York City. January 5th, 2020, those were her remarks. We are not here to be anti-anti-Semites. Our identity is not combating hate. We have a positive mission, not just a negative one. Because focusing only on the negative, focusing only on the victimization and the victimhood, keeps us victimized, keeps us as a victim, it keeps us weak, it keeps us vulnerable. And it doesn't resonate, doesn't resonate with, with the next generation. You tell the next generation, you know what it means to be Jewish? It means you're always being targeted. It means you're always being victimized. It means you're always a subject of hate. Oh, yay. Where do I sign up? Are you kidding me? Who wants to be part of that club? Who wants? You would want out of that club. No one wants to be part of that club. So it's very important. It's very important to focus on who we are and build up our strength. If we're trying to outsmart anti-Semitism, we have to be smart. We can't panic. We can't fear. We can't, yes, we have to be aware. We can't close our eyes and pretend and put our head in the sand and not be aware. We have to be aware, but we also cannot fear. So the question now on the table is the following. How do we keep our head on our shoulders and remain even keeled even as we see the dangers of anti-Semitism around us? It seems like a very tall task, right? We're supposed to be aware of anti-Semitism, be aware of the dangers, and yet not, get, not panic, not become overly fearful, keep our head on our shoulders, looking forward, creating strategies to combat anti-Semitism, to outsmart anti-Semitism. But how? If we're really afraid, if there really all these incidents happen, so how do, we, how, do we remain, how do we remain sober and not panicking? So I'm glad you asked. But I, so what I'd like to share with you today are tried and true ideas gleaned from Jewish wisdom on how to remain positive and forward-thinking, even while being aware of the anti-Jewish threats around us. Here's the good news. One of the realities 
of being a people with a 3,000-year history of anti-Semitism is that we've had a, a many opportunities to talk about Jewish survival, to talk about how to combat Jewish hatred. There's a lot of conversation, a lot of wisdom on this. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to go through some of the major ideas that have historically carried Jews through difficult times. So again, let me just explain how we got here. We started off by talking about how anti-Semitism is a very relevant topic. It's a topic that we must discuss based on what's going on in the world and just our own reality. So we need to talk about it. I then segued into a conversation about the dangers of fear. How the bully and the terrorist, they want you to be afraid. They want you to, be, to look at yourself as the victim. Because that keeps the power dynamic. If you're the victim, well, and then they're the victim, the, and they, then they are the one who's victimizing, that's exactly the dynamic. It, it, to regain one's power, to regain control of the narrative and say, I'm not a victim. You're hating on me, that's fine. But I have my own strategy. I have my own purpose. I have my own way of living. That, that takes power back into your court, and that puts control back in the narrative. So this is what we're trying to focus on, not how to be anti-anti-Semites, but what does it mean to be a Jew, to be a confident Jew, Jew to be a Jew that is inoculated against the, 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 the ills and the dangers of anti-Semitism. So that's the conversation. And again, as I just said a moment ago, we have a 3,000-year history of dealing with this, which means there's a lot of wisdom that we can draw from. Let me pause for a moment and let's take some comments or some questions thus far. Please jump in. I just wanted to make two comments. One is um, that, of course, nobody wants to be the victim and that is what led to assimilation. Mostly. Mostly people said, I, I, I'm out of here, especially in Germany. Um, that's a, and then the other comment I wanted to make was, we have a very, very concise example about what's the essence of combating anti-Semitism, knowing who you are, with, I forget which Rebbe, who the bully came into his jail cell and said, the czar wants to, you have to come now, right now to the czar, the czar wants to meet with you. And the Rebbe was davening Shemona Esrei, the, the, um, and he just kept on davening. And and, right. and, the, and and the bully kept kept harassing him, and when the rebel finished, he said, "I have there's somebody higher than you, higher than me, and higher than the czar, and that's who I respect." Right, 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 right. It's it's standing strong, but based on knowing who you are, exactly. Yes, it's the idea of standing strong, that. right? The idea of standing strong, knowing who you are. If we think that we are victims of hate, then that's what we're going to be. When we know that we're Jews, right, that we're, we're strong Jews, then, then it's, a different, it's a different experience. It's a different experience. All right, more questions, comments? Rabbi, yes. Uh, a, I think another thing that's relevant to this conversation, in the past 50 years or so, it's, it's relatively recent as far as history goes, there have been people who have been trying to steal our identity. And someone who tries to steal another person's identity—that's that's 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 the worst possible attack you can think of. And so, for example, there are evangelical Christians who call themselves Jews. They are trying—they are trying to steal our identity. And I think this comes from guilt on their part. And 
So sometimes when I'm asked about anti-Semitism, people will say, well, how can you be optimistic in all this? How can you see the positive? It's such a dreary situation. And I say, because we shouldn't be here. And the fact that we are, that we are here shouldn't be taken for granted. Right, what does she say? So people ask her, how can you be optimistic? You know all about anti-Semitism, Holocaust, you're, you're, that's your field. So how can you be optimistic about anything? It's so dreary. And her response is, as she herself shared in this interview with the National Jewish Retreat a few years ago, she says, because we shouldn't be here. The fact that we're here shouldn't be taken for granted. In other words, the fact that we're here, that itself is a source of optimism. It's a powerful and, yes, maybe a little bit counterintuitive take. The threats against us should serve to bolster our confidence because what it means is we've seen this before. We've been through these challenges before. We've weathered the storm and we've come out okay. I mean, think about the idea of resilience. It's a big word today in psychology, right? Resilience and grit and how to create, how to, how to, how to raise kids and how to um, educate adults and mentor people to have resilience. So what is resilience? Resilience is learned when we face adversity, feel the challenge, sweat it out, panic a little bit, and survive despite it all. Resilience is born of surviving the threat, th surviving the challenge. So if there's one thing that Judaism sorry, that Jewish history has taught us, it's the trait of resilience. We've seen it all. We've been through it all. We've, we've stood against the, the mightiest nations. They fired every bullet that they had against us. Every weapon, conceivable and inconceivable, has been put against the Jew. And the Jew's still standing. So I'll ask you a question. Is that a source of pessimism or optimism? Deborah Lipstadt chooses to say, choose to think it's a source of optimism. And I happen to agree with her, right? We're still here. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. It's a miracle. Whatever it is, we've seen it. We've been through it. And we will survive. We've survived it until now. We'll survive. We'll make it through. We have a learned resilience that's in our DNA. You know, trauma, there's something they call intergenerational trauma. Trauma that's passed down. Well, there's also intergenerational resilience. And we have that. We have a natural resilience. When we face adversity, we face challenge, We've been through it. We've seen this before. We've come out the other end. We'll be okay because we've been there. I want to tell you a story. Story time. The story goes back to the year 11, to around the year 1168. This is the Middle Ages. And location is Yemen. The Jews in Yemen in, a, in and around 19, uh, 1168 were facing some pretty heavy adversity on three fronts. So there are three challenges to the Jewish community in Yemen. Number one, a fanatical Muslim cleric became the ruler of Yemen. And one of his policies was that he decreed that all Jews must convert to Islam or else it's going to be very, very serious consequences. So that was one threat hanging over the head of the Jewish community in Yemen. Number two, there was an apostate Jew, a Jew who had renounced his Judaism, who said and proclaimed that based on Jewish texts, converting to Islam was okay. So there was a threat from outside, from the, from the, from the, the Muslim cleric leader of Yemen. There was a threat from inside. There was a Jew who had converted to Islam who said, guys, join me, it's okay. And to top it off, the third 
the third angle of challenge, was that there was an imposter who proclaimed himself to be the Jewish Messiah. Somebody who said, I am the Messiah, follow me. Things were a mess. The Jewish community was in disarray. There was a lot of fear and a lot of panic. And so, one of the great leading rabbis of Yemen, of the Yemenite Jewish community, in the year 1168, turned to one of the greatest Jewish leaders of the time, and really one of the greatest Jewish leaders of all time, none other than Rabbi Moses Maimonides. Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, a.k.a. Maimonides, the great Jewish philosopher, codified of Jewish law, physician, astronomer, etc. He turns to Maimonides for guidance. What do we do? The community's in disarray. We don't know where to turn. We have no hope. Everyone's afraid. This guy's trying to convert us. This guy's saying conversion is okay. This guy's saying I'm the Messiah. We don't know what to do, where to turn. We're all panicking. Maimonides penned a letter in response to the rabbi in Yemen's call, reach a, a, a plea for help. And Maimonides essentially writes what I just told you before. This is not our first rodeo. It's not the first time our people have been threatened. And we've survived. We've survived once and twice and three times, and we can survive again. So don't panic. We've been there before. We've weathered the storm. We'll survive again. Let me share this text with you. It's really a powerful text. This is going to be text number four in your booklets or in your books, which is on page, I don't know what page it's on, but text number four. I'm going to read this and throw in a little bit of, uh, of commentary here. God assured our father Jacob early on that although the nations would enslave his descendants, treat them cruelly and subjugate them, his children would survive and endure, whereas those who enslave them would eventually disappear. In other words, Maimani says, this story has been predicted. You have nothing to worry about. Don't be afraid. Right? Don't be afraid. It's happened before. God already promised it's going to happen. But God also promised that the Jews will survive and the nations will one by one disappear. God told Jacob in Genesis 28, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. So what does that mean? That doesn't sound like a good thing, with dust of the earth, which means, as Maimonides interprets, although they are destined to be trampled and downtrodden, as everyone tramples the dust of the earth, they will overcome and triumph in the end, just as, to continue the analogy, the dust eventually rises over those who, trample, who trampled upon it when their corpses are buried. So Israel will remain in existence, whereas those who have trodden upon her will not. Let me stop sharing for a moment and explain the analogy. God promises Jacob that his progeny, his children, will be like the dust of the earth. And Maimonides says, so what, what kind of blessing is that? Like the dust of the earth? Like what's the, what's the blessing there? He says, everyone steps on the earth. But ultimately, the earth gets the last laugh. The earth ends up covering over everybody. Right after 120 years, everyone returns to the earth in one way or another. So who has the last laugh? The earth. This is the blessing that God gives to Jacob and his descendants, the Jewish people. God says, throughout the generations, throughout the millennia, what will happen is there will be nations that rise up to try to trample all over you. There are those that will try to walk all over you. But you should know this, ultimately at the end, you will triumph, you will survive, and those nations will fall. Just look at the history. The ancient, um, the ancient uh, Egyptian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, all these ancient empires are, are, are uh, relegated to history. 
And the Jewish people were still studying the same books, wrapping the same tefillin, performing the same mitzvot, speaking the same language, reading the same books. It's the same, eating the same gefilte fish. Okay, maybe that's new. But we're still doing the same stuff, right? It's all this, we're still, we're still plugged in. Yeah, who's wearing togas? Who's wearing togas? I mean, not just for fun, right? Who's wearing togas? Who knows? Who wears tefillin? We still wear tefillin. A talis, a prayer show. We're still doing the same things. Let me put it this way. Just, just to give you an image. If Julius Caesar showed up in a time machine in Rome today, Julius Caesar himself, the man himself, showed up in Rome, October 26, 2021, he would look around. Huh, this place has changed. Interesting. Yeah, no one's wearing the same clothes. No one's doing the same things. No one's speaking the same language. Yeah, where's everybody? What's going on? No one to talk to. He would feel alone. People would look at him like he's Meshuggah. But imagine in Israel. Imagine Jerusalem. Imagine if Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses himself, or for that matter, Maimonides, or anyone, pick anyone. Moses, but let's stick with Moses. Imagine if Moses time-machined to present-day Jerusalem. He would be there, let's say, with tefillin on and a talus. He would fit right in with the minion. He would say, Shalom Aleichem. We would say, Aleichem Shalom. It would be like, like old friends. Nothing would change. Because all of those that tried to tr- trample upon us ultimately fell by the wayside of history. And we're still here. So this is the opening shot, if you will, that Maimonides writes in 1168. 11, that's a long time ago. It's a long time ago. That's centuries. 800, 900 years. That's a long time ago. Maimonides writes 850 years or so. He writes to the Jews in Yemen who are panicking. Guys, you got this. No need to panic. Not to say that there's no challenge. Not to say there's no threat. Not to say you you shouldn't strategize. Of course you should. But panic. You'll be okay. You're going to survive. We've survived. You will survive. God promised that we will survive. Let's continue inside. Let me share the rest of this letter or the rest of the excerpt of this letter. Take a look. The creator, Maimonides continues, the creator similarly assured us through his prophets that we will never be destroyed, that he will never permit our annihilation, and that he will never stray from being a nation. Sorry, and that we will never stray from being a nation devoted to its purpose. Just as it is impossible for God's own existence to be nullified, so is it impossible that we should be destroyed and eliminated from the world. So spoke Malachi, I am God and I have not changed and you, the children of Jacob, have not been destroyed. The the prophet Malachi says it beautifully, quoting God, just like God doesn't change, the Jewish people are are around, will still be around. The eternality of God constitutes the eternality of the Jewish people. As God is eternal, so are the Jewish people eternal as well. Now, what does this do? Does this solve the problem? Does this, is this a letter that you forward over to the Muslim cleric who declares war against Judaism and Jews? Is this, is this the... No. No, you don't forward this letter. And this doesn't solve the problem. This doesn't tell you what to do. It just says, no need to panic. We've seen this story before. You will be okay. That's the message. Are you with me on the message? Message makes sense? This is... When Maimonides is choosing to pen a letter to the Jews of Yemen, it's called, by the way, in Hebrew, Igeret. Teman. Igeret teman. Igeret means letter. Teman is the Hebrew word for Yemen. 
Teman. Like Temani Jews, Yemenite Jews. Teman. Igera Teman. It's the letter to the Yemenite Jews who were up in, up in panic. They were, they were nervous. They were anxious. They didn't know what to do. They were beside themselves. Don't worry. It will all work out. God will, will provide. You will be okay. Doesn't mean you don't do the work on the ground, as we'll discuss tonight. But what it means is the, the fear does not help. So this is the first message that I want to share with you tonight. How do we combat the fear of anti-Semitism? We know that it's not healthy to be afraid. Anxiety doesn't help. But how do we combat the fear? If we're thinking about anti-Semitism, we might get afraid. So what do we do? Meditation number one. I'm going to give you two meditations tonight. Meditation number one is Jewish survival is a miracle that God has performed for us. God's eternality is our eternality. Just as God is forever and diamonds, according to the beer, so too is the Jewish people. We are forever, we are eternal, and the nations will not crush us or destroy us. They will ultimately fall, and we're still, we're still trucking along day by day, little by little. So that's meditation number one to help neutralize the fear. Let's talk about meditation number two. Meditation number two is a bit more personal. It's not about the survival of the Jewish people as a whole. It's about the survival, it's about the well-being of the individual as an individual. And this meditation is on the fact that it's a fundamental Jewish belief that God is with us in all of our challenges. Along these lines, I have a trivia question for you. Feel free to open up your mic and jump in on this. Trivia question. What is the most common two-word phrase in the Torah, the most common two-word phrase in the, sorry, in the entire Tanakh, in all of Jewish scripture. Two-word phrase that's most common. Take fear a guess. Not. Say it again. Fear not. That is correct. That is correct. You got it right off the bat. The Hebrew is al-tira. Do not be afraid or fear not. That is the most Common two-word phrase in Tanakh. In fact, it repeats itself 44 times in Tanakh. 44 times the Jewish scripture tells us, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. And this becomes a mantra. Why not be afraid? Don't be afraid because, as we'll see, because God is with us. Not only on a collective level, Jewish survival throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, all that is true, but on an individual level. It's a Jewish belief, foundational Jewish belief, that God is with us individually in our pain and in our challenge. Let's say in our challenge. To express this thought, to express this sentiment, let's jump into text number six. Text number six is a very famous psalm penned by King David. Um, it's a psalm that many of us are familiar with. And it speaks to this idea. Give me a second as I fast forward through some graphs and, and figures. Text number six. Let's ask Charna. Charna, please read text number six, if you will. Okay. A song of David. God is my shepherd, I shall not lack. He allows me to lay down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Even if I walk in the valley of death's shadow, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. King David, by the way, had his own share of tsaras. 
My mother mentioned before how King Saul was paranoid of King David, of David. He wasn't king yet. And because of that, David was on the run because Saul was trying to kill him, trying to assassinate him because he viewed him as a threat. King David was on the run. He lived a very, very difficult life. He had a lot of challenges. And King David writes in Psalms, God is my shepherd, I shall not lack. Even if I walk in the valley of death's shadow, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Why is there no fear? King David says, why will I not fear? For you are with me. That's the key phrase, you are with me. This doesn't mean you're with the Jewish people and Jews survival and Judaism will survive. That's the macro. That's a macro level. This is the micro level, the individual level. I feel that you, God, are with me even in my challenge and therefore I'm not afraid to take on that challenge. I'm not afraid when I'm in that space of challenge because I know that you are with me. This is a very, very powerful meditation. It's a powerful belief. By the way, I want to mention something. Uh, David refers to God as my shepherd. Shepherd. You know what King David did before he was king? You know what he did? Yeah? What was he? He was a shepherd. He was, he was a out in the fields minding his sheep when they came, when Samuel came to find the next king to anoint. That's right. That's right. He was in the field doing the shepherd thing when the prophet came to find the next king. Right? On that, on that big uh, reality show, uh, The Next King of Israel... I'm kidding. On that, right? That, that was, uh, that, that, and, and David was shepherding. In fact, the Talmud tells us how he used to take the animals out to the field, out to, to eat. He would first have the younger animals eat because they could only eat the softer grass. And then the older animals who would also need some softer grass. And then the, the strong, you know, middle-aged animals that could eat anything, but he first made sure that the ones who needed a little bit more uh, particular diets, that they would have their food first so that they would have what they needed. Bottom line is King David knew what a shepherd is, what a good shepherd. He was one, and, and a good shepherd is someone who cares about each individual animal, not just the collective flock, not just, yeah, I have 100 animals, I make sure that 100 animals return. At the end of the day, that's not what a shepherd is. Now, I say this from no experience as being a shepherd, but based on what Judaism says about being a good shepherd, it's not about a collective, you know, a general um, a care about the sheep. It's an individual care. And so when David says, when King David says that God is my shepherd, it means that God cares about me as an individual. God is watching over me. God is with me as David, as an individual, not collectively. So meditation number one is, as Deborah Lipstadt said, we're still here. That's a miracle. So I'm optimistic that we'll still be here. We have learned resilience. We have strength. We have grit. Wonderful. And what does King David say? Not only collectively is God behind us, but, but, but individually God is with us. And if I meditate, if I have faith in that area, if I have true faith that God is with me in my challenge, in my challenge of anti-Semitism, we're facing a challenge, anti-Semitic, if I feel that God is with me, I can remain positive through the challenge. That doesn't solve the challenge magically. It's not hocus pocus poof. It solves it. I still need to work to solve it. But I can work to solve it from a position of strategy. I can, I can strategically work to solve anti-Semitism or to outsmart anti-Semitism because I'm not in a state of panic. I'm not in a state of fear. God is with me. I'll be okay. This will be okay. We just have to figure out how to make it happen, how to make it work. So what I'm suggesting tonight so far, is that we think about 
What is it that we can conjure up in our own consciousness to help neutralize the anxiety and the fear of anti-Semitism so that we're not debilitated by anti-Semitism, so that we're not knee-jerk reaction in victim mode. Oh, we're being victimized. Their anti-Semitism is bad. Everyone hates the Jews. Who benefits from a victim mentality? Certainly not us. So how do we move away from a victim mentality to a more empowered mentality so that we can take on anti-Semitism the way it needs to be taken on? Number one, belief in the miracle of, of Judaism and the Jewish people. And number two, belief and trust that God is with me individually. These are two of the ideas that have been discussed in Judaism over the years, over 3,000 years of dealing with this exact same stuff that have helped many Jews stay away from fear and anxiety. I hope this is making sense. I'll share with you a more modern story because King David has you know, lived a few thousand years ago. A more modern version of the story is Natan Sharansky, the famous refusenik who stood up against the anti-Semitism of the Soviet regime. He says in interviews that it was a big piece of what kept him going, even in the darkest moments of his imprisonment and his uh, beatings and interrogations, what kept him going was the psalm that we just read, Psalm 23. The one that talks about how even if I walk in the valley of the shadow, in the shadow of the valley of death, or death's shadow, I think they translate it, I, I have no fear because God is with me. That trust, that faith, or faith and trust, trust is stronger than faith, kept him going. He says this in interviews. So these are things that you and I can, can integrate. It's not easy. right? It's, not, it's easier to feel like a victim. It's easier to feel afraid. It's more natural. It's more visceral. It's more, it's more um, um, reactive. Sure. But it's not healthier. It's not healthy to be afraid. What's healthy is to be strong and to react and to, and, and, and to, to, to make the next move from a position of, of strength, position of, of, of mindfulness. So outsmarting anti-Semitism, here's my point, outsmarting anti-Semitism begins by moving away from fear. Can't outsmart anything when you're afraid. You're, you're just reacting, you're not outsmarting. We first have to deal with the, with the fear. All right, by the way, I will say this. this. This sentiment is expressed every Saturday night. Take a look at this. I'm gonna read this text. Text number eight, uh, text number seven, sorry. This is the Havdalah. He, this is how the Havdalah ceremony, the, 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 uh, the, the ritual that we do to close out the Sabbath, every Saturday night after sunset, after the three stars come out, this is the opening line. Indeed, God is my deliverance. I am confident and I shall not fear. For God is my strength and my praise and he has been my salvation. This adds another point. We've seen in our lives how we've, We've, we've been able to work through in our own personal lives, not just historically on a collective level, but individually, how we've been able to work through challenge and hardship and, and with the assistance of Hashem, with, with God's help. And the message here is, we declare every Saturday night, I have no fear going into the darkness of the week, going into all the challenges that lie ahead after that sanctity of, of, of the Sabbath, because I know that God is with me and He has already been my salvation once, twice, many times before, so I'm confident that this is going to carry me through once again. So let's pause here for a moment and kind of uh, pick up where we, where we are right now. Based on, our dis based on our discussion so far, we know two things. Okay, there are two things. Thing number one is that the fear of anti-Semitism can debilitate us and hold us back from dealing with the challenge 
of anti-Semitism in, in a healthy way. So fear is debilitating. We don't want that. And number two, we can minimize the fear of anti-Semitism by looking at our history of survival and trusting that God is with us individually and helping us through our challenges. Okay, so that's great. So these are the two things that we've learned so far. Um, yeah. I have one thing sure. to add. Is after uh, doing Aleinu, the last, last phrases of Aleinu, yeah. you say every Shman Esrei, and it's also what saved the Jews on Purim from the, from the annihilation by Haman. Right, so let me, let me translate. So yeah. what my mother is referring to is the last few lines of prayer at the end of the service, after we sing Aleinu L'Shabeah, certain prayers, we say, we sing another few lines. Don't be afraid. Don't be concerned of sudden terror. Right? And from the, the machinations of the wicked, rely on Hashem, and, uh, and, 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 he will, and He will lead us to, to, to success, and to, to security and safety. And that is really what has carried us through, through, through fear in the past. So, so far, so good. So far, so good. We know that fear is no good, and we know we have two meditations to move, classic Jewish meditations to move away from fear. Great. So that's all about the fear, but what do we actually do about anti-Semitism? What do we do about the threat? How do we balance the need to act with our faith and trust, with our faith and trust of God, in God? In other words, if we really trust God, that God will help us and God will, will, will provide for our security and we have nothing to, to be afraid because God is with us and Jewish survival, all that's, if that's really the case, then should we even do anything? Or should we just sit back and say, God, you deal with the anti-Semites. I'm just going to play some golf, right? I mean, I don't even have to worry at all. Or do we need to do something? That's the question. So to navigate this very important question, how do we balance faith and trust in God with the seeming need to act to understand this balance better? We're going to go back about 2,500 years, to the time, to the era between the first and second holy temples in Jerusalem, a time when the Persian Empire ruled over the land of Israel. At that time, all Jews in the world were under the dominion of the Persian Empire. Even if they didn't live in Israel, even if they lived in other neighboring countries, the Persian Empire ruled all of that land. There were no Jews outside the Persian Empire. And what happens in the story, as you may know as the story of Purim, as you may know, what happens is a, 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 an anti-Semite, anti-Semitic, Jew-hating individual becomes an advisor to the king, to the Persian king. This advisor's name is Haman, or Haman, I'm going to call him Haman. And Haman has an idea. He wants to kill and annihilate every single Jewish person from the face of the earth. Men, women, children, old, young, anywhere in between. No exceptions, no Rachmanis, no mercy, no... That's it. Just complete and utter annihilation of every single Jew. He approaches the king with this idea and the king says, Sure, no problem. You want to get rid of them? Go ahead. At some point... The Jewish leader of the time, whose name is Mordechai, I'm just reviewing the story just to get, make sure that we're fresh. So Mordechai, the, the Jewish leader, gets wind of this terrible decree that's, going, that's impending, that's going to happen at some point. 
God forbid. And he turns to the only person that he believes can help in this situation. And who is that? His cousin. What's his cousin's name? You know, his, you know her name. Her name is Esther, right? His name. Now, Esther also happens to be the queen. She also happens to be married to the king that just signed off on this decree to annihilate all Jews. So again, the, the advisor goes to the king. The king says, sure, get rid of the Jews. Mordechai finds out about it, goes to Esther and says, Esther, my cousin, my friend, our people are in danger. Why don't you speak to your husband? Okay, so far so good. We have a plan. So here's my question. Here's my question. If you were Esther, if you were Queen Esther, what would you do? What's the first thing you would do? First thing. Pray. Huh? Pray. Okay, pray. But now you're getting religious on me. What would you think is the first thing you would do? If you needed to speak with the king and uh, get him to annul a decree, what would you do? Yeah, yeah, you get dressed up, you know. You, you would, yeah, Dr. Max, you want to jump in on this one? Yeah, make sure he had his favorite dinner and his favorite drink. That's it, a dinner, a drink, a nice outfit. You, you, would, you would facilitate to get the king in a good mood. And when the king's in a good mood, you say, by the way, dear husband of mine, uh, by the way, this guy is uh, messing around with the Jews. I happen to be a Jew, so... Let's, let's, let's not let this happen. Boom, he's happy, he's good. What does Queen Esther do instead? What does she do? You know what she does? First thing, she calls for a three-day fast for herself and for all the people. A three-day fast. She's going to fast for three days. And then she says, I'm going to go in. Let, let's read this inside. It's, it's actually quite shocking when you, when you pull it out and read it on its own. It's actually a shocking approach. Take a look at what happens over here. Esther dictated a message to be sent back to Mordechai. In other words, Esther, Mordechai sends a message to her about the decree. Esther says, I'll take care of it, and here's the message back. Go and assemble all the Jews who live in Shushan, that was the capital. Let them fast on my behalf. Let them neither eat nor drink for three days. By the way, neither eat nor drink for three days, that's like Yom Kippur for three days. I don't know about you, but that's brutal. That's brutal. I don't even know if that's possible. I'm just saying, that seems like extreme. Yom Kippur for one day is extreme. I'm, I'm sorry for pausing on this, but if you could just feel what three-day Yom Kippur would feel like, it is beyond, beyond, beyond. Yeah, it doesn't say don't eat, you know, luxurious foods, you know, in those, don't eat or drink for three days. Night and day. Oh, sorry, forgot to mention. Night and day. I and my maiden, she says, will, will fast likewise. And then I shall go to the king, although it's contrary to the law, because the king usually calls the wife and not the other way around. And if, I'm a, if, if I am to perish, I shall perish. In other words, I'm going to go to him uncalled, un, unsummoned. But uh, what happens, whatever happens will happen. Do you understand how bizarre this approach is? You would think... She should get dressed and cook a meal and come in. and That would be an approach. What's her, what's her strategy? Brilliant strategy, right? Brilliant strategy is I'm going to fast for three days and three nights. No food or drink. Now, I'm going to be just physically a wreck, absolute wreck, tired and hungry and weak. And then on that level, I'm going to go and see the, see the king. Makes no sense. Like, just think about, just think about yourself. 
Yeah, Yom Kippur, uh, post Yom Kippur, before you break the fast on the bagels, before the, the break fast, before the break fast, are you going to set up a very important meeting? You're going to go into a meeting like on Yom Kippur? I mean, not on, but like coming from Yom Kippur? Of course not. It, it's a very, it, it's, not, it's not a good move, especially considering the dynamics. I'm not going to get into details, but you can imagine yourself, especially considering the dynamics that are going on over here between the king and the queen. Why is she fasting for three days? It makes no sense. It seems, frankly, reckless. So to understand her approach, to understand her approach, we need to look at a more general question, which really touches on our topic right now, which is how do we balance, how do we balance the need to act with the notion of faith and trust in God? How do we balance the idea that we are active partners with God and we're, we're, we, we need to act and do things and create things with the idea that we believe and trust in God, that God will take care of things? Who's taking care of business? Is God doing it or are we doing it? Who's steering this ship? Are we in control or is God in control? What does Judaism believe? So I want to share with you a Jewish perspective drawn from Jewish philosophy, Jewish Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, Chabad Hasidic philosophy. I want to just kind of distill and give you a perspective on this. The truth is we need to strike a balance between these two ideas. A balance between the idea that God is running the show and the idea that we need to do our, we need to put in our effort and act on our own behalf. Because in truth, we need to strike a balance between these two ideals. Why so? Why so? Because this is the great partnership that God set up for us. So for example, I'll give you a simple example. When it comes to earning a livelihood, so Judaism believes, Kabbalah talks about it, Chabad Hasidic philosophy expounds on it, that the blessing of a livelihood comes from God. Parnasa, the blessing of a livelihood, comes from God. But not only from God. Because although it comes from God, God wants it to come through a physical, material channel. God wants to create a way, a pathway, physical means of, 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 of reaching our bank account. And for that, we need to go to work and put in the effort. So we have this great partnership between our belief and trust in God, knowing that God is the source of the blessing, and at the same time coupling that with, matching that with our efforts to create a channel and a pathway for the blessing to flow. So I want to share, you, share with you this idea as couched in Kabbalistic mystical terms. I'm going to read this text and uh, throw in a little bit of commentary over here. This is from the third Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Lubavitch from Derech Mitzasecha, uh, text 11. Here we go. It's a long text. I'm going to read it. Everything that comes into being in this material world must materialize through natural means. Nature, however, is simply a garment, meaning God's energy bringing things into existence must be dressed, concealed, and obscured to the point that an observer sees only a world that appears to run naturally. In truth, however, everything emerges directly from God himself. He obscures the divine bestowals until the miraculous and supernatural reality of material existence is not observable and material developments seem perfectly natural. In, in other words, just in my own words, everything in life is a miracle from God, but it doesn't look like it. And that's the way God wants it. God wants the miracle to look natural. So it's all God's blessing, but it needs to take on and assume a physical material form 
under the guise of being perfectly natural, perfectly normal, nothing to see here, no God behind this one. That is the facade that needs to exist. When, for example, back inside, God provides an, an individual with an ample livelihood, it is not done through a miracle as it was in the Sinai Desert, when God rained manna and meat from the skies. Rather, God sends the blessing through the individual's business affairs. The gains reaped through commerce appear so natural that the individual can be fooled into thinking along the lines of, it's my strength that generated this wealth. And it's my wisdom that led to my success, for I am well-versed in commerce. I know what to buy and the most prudent times, times to sell. So a person can think, in short, that they are the ones that are creating their own wealth, their smarts, their, their uh, business acumen. They think that they're behind it all. But as the Tzemah continues to say, that's not the case. This arrangement works as long as we prepare a valid garment through which the divine flow of sustenance can descend into material reality. Our occupation must be proportionate so that according to the rules of nature, the sum required for our livelihood could theoretically be gained via such an occupation. If this requirement is met, our occupation serves as a perfect garment in which God can disguise his blessing. For we could easily claim, um, I acquired this wealth through my own skills because it is indeed considered natural for such an occupation to yield that range of profit. Since such an assertion is logically sound, our, our occupation is an appropriate conduit for God's kindness. Accordingly, bottom line, while we work, we should be mindful of our belief that our earnings are really God's blessing. They are like any other open miracle, like the miracle of the mana. Our actions merely weave a garment behind which God can disguise his blessing. That's enough for right now. The point is like this. Does God do it or do we do it? And the answer is, of course, yes. Right? Yes, both are true. God does it, and then he wants us to do it, or at least to create the illusion that we're doing it by doing it, by putting in our own effort, even though that doesn't create the blessing, but it kind of garbs the blessing. It puts clothing on the blessing. It makes the blessing look normal and natural, and that's the way God wants it. So we need God's blessing and our actions. What's true for money is true for Jewish survival and combating anti-Semitism. And this is the story of Esther. This is the story of Purim. Mordechai tells his cousin Esther. By the way, some say that they were married before the king married her, just so you know. Mordechai tells Esther the following. He says, there's a, there's a grave decree. We're all in danger. It's terrible, etc. Okay? So she says, I, I, I got this. What am I going to do, she says. First thing, I'm going to fast. First thing. Why? Because if we want a blessing for survival, if we want a blessing for protection, divine protection, the first thing I need to do is turn to God Almighty. That's the first thing I need to do, is turn to God. I, the first thing I, I, I don't need to do is go to the king, because the blessing does not come from the king. The whole problem is they went to the king's feast. The Jews went to the king's feast. That got them into the mess in the first place, which is a, a longer story. But the solution is not first thing going to the king and bringing the king some good food and beverage. First thing is, you go to God. And this is what Adina Malka said before, right? What's the first thing you would do, I asked? And what did Adina Malka say? Pray. Pray. And that's exactly along the lines of what Esther felt as well. First thing we do is plug in to the source. Channel the blessing. Then you got to go to the king. You got to put in the effort and do the work because turn to God and say, God, help me. 
you got you got to create a space, a physical, a natural space for that to transpire. God, God doesn't want to perform a miracle out of nowhere. Poof, you know, magic out of nowhere. Suddenly things, you know, fall away. The danger falls away. Give me an alibi, God says. Give me a way to work through this naturally that looks like it's nature, but that's really supernatural. That's where the effort, that's where the action of showing up to the king comes in. But what's primary and what's secondary? And this is the key. What's primary and what's secondary? Primary is the source. Secondary is our efforts. It's like when you want water from your sink. Yeah? So you turn on, you open the faucet, open the spigot, whatever you call it, open the spigot, put the, pull up the handle, great, water comes out. You can have a handle from today to tomorrow, open it up, close it, and nothing's going to happen unless it's connected to the source. You can, you can go to the king, go to the king, go to the king. If you're not connected to the source, if the water's not flowing, you ain't going to get any water. It's not going to happen. So step yeah, one is... Water bill. Yeah, exactly. Step one is plug into the source. That's what Esther did. She prayed and fasted for three days, three nights. Then you go into the king. This is what we learn historically from the story of Esther, from the book of Esther, from the story of Purim, which is probably the biggest example of salvation of, of, a, of a Jewish community, the Jewish world, really, against anti-Semitism. Here you have an anti-Semite, a Jew hater, a Haman, right? Boo. We even boo him until this day every time we mention his name. We boo him in synagogue. We shake the grogger. We eat his ears. Okay, not exactly, but something like that. Or his hat, right? The Hamantashen. So, Haman is the villain. What does Esther do? Doesn't go to the king right away. That's not going to work. She goes to God first and then goes to the king. So here's the message for us. How do we combat anti-Semitism? And trust me, we have three more lessons and we have a lot more to talk about on the ground, how to deal with an anti-Semite, how to educate. We have where it comes from. There's a lot of conversation. But in tonight's first session, this is the big idea. Number one, don't be afraid. We have to read. It's, it's an issue that we need to deal with, but fear doesn't help, number one. And we had meditations. About, but number two is when we begin acting, let's not forget about the spiritual stuff. When there's a threat to the Jewish community, let's open up a book of Psalms and pray. Let's give tzedakah, charity. Let's do a mitzvah, take on a mitzvah. Let's wrap tefillin, light Shabbos candles. Let's do the spiritual stuff alongside and maybe first before we do the physical stuff. Advocacy and, and, and meetings and diplomacy, of course, on the ground, we got to create the channel. We got to create the garment. We got to garb the miracle in some sort of natural clothing. But don't forget about the source. And so I want to conclude with the following story. The story took place in 1990. The exact date was... Um, April 23rd, 1990. Not that long ago. There was a fellow whose name was Eliakim Rubinstein. He was an Israeli and he was an aide to Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir. And he called 770 Eastern Parkway, which you may know as the Rebbe's address, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's address in Crown Heights in Brooklyn, New York. And who answered the phone? Rabbi Benjamin Klein, one of the Rebbe's secretaries. Who, who always worked with the Israeli, uh, the Israeli side. Mr. Rubenstein, on behalf of the Prime Minister, calls the Rebbe's office and says that Israeli intelligence has just received reports that the PLO has issued orders to strike Jewish targets for, around the world. This was a directive from the PLO to strike Jewish targets around the world. And Mr. Rubenstein called Rabbi Klein to 
to ask him to deliver this news to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Rabbi Klein told the Rebbe, it was right before the Mincha prayers, the Rebbe Davin Mincha prayed in the synagogue the afternoon prayers, right after Mincha. And by the way, there's video of this, and I will send it in the recap. You'll see the video with the transcript. The Rebbe spoke in Yiddish, it's got the English, but I'm going to share, it with, share with you what the Rebbe said. The Rebbe spoke after Mincha, got, got the lectern, got the podium, and began speaking an impromptu talk. And this is what he said. I'll, I'll share the video with you, but for right now, let's read the transcript in English. The Rebbe said the following. Hold on, give me a second here. Hold on, hold on, hold on. About an hour ago, I received word, this is text number 13. Um, yeah, about an hour ago, I received word that the PLO commanded all of its inter international chapters to strike Jewish enemies and inflict bodily harm and much more. May it never come to be. We will not elaborate on such negative things. It is therefore necessary to underscore God's abundant blessings to all Jews in all places for all that they need with an attitude of happiness and authentic trust. Special emphasis should be placed on the well-known directive, think good and it will be good. Positive thoughts lead to positive outcomes. It is also appropriate to utilize this information, not to frighten God forbid, but with a happy attitude, thinking positively to add more in matters of Torah and mitzvot. My friends, this was the reaction of the Rebbe hearing about it, an anti-Jewish threat, a threat against Jews and Jewish interests around the world. The Rebbe responds by saying, let's not panic, let's not fear, let's have trust in God, let's do a mitzvah. At the same time, of course, reaching all of the international channels. But what's the Rebbe's message to the community? What's the Rebbe's message to, the, to, to you and I, to, the, to people who might otherwise be afraid, whose fears might be stoked? The message is, number one, fear is not productive. And number two, trust in God. And number three, do a mitzvah and give tzedakah and pray. That's the message. Those are the three messages of tonight. Don't be afraid, trust in God, and plug in spiritually. How to deal on the ground. We have three more weeks. We're going to talk about that. But step one, or steps one, two, and three, the first approach are the things that we spoke about tonight. My goal tonight is one thing. Anti-Semitism is an important, critical conversation. But the fear and the fear-mongering is not healthy. Now, we can get into the psychology of why is it that, there's the, that fear, ha that's another time and another conversation. But we know it's not healthy. We need to be smart. We need to outsmart anti-Semitism. That requires an even keel, a healthy perspective. Uh, I said sober. I mean, not fearful, but sober. Clear eye perspective on the issue at hand. Staying positive, staying trusting, recognizing the source of blessings, and then getting down to work. This is the tried and true approach. We're still here because we've done this approach, and we'll still be here because we'll follow this approach into the future. I thank you very sincerely for joining me tonight for lesson one of Outsmarting Antisemitism. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's discussion. There's so much more to come. If you're not yet signed up for the course, those that are trying it out, please join and, uh, and, and continue the conversation. Next week, the class is entitled No Apologies. We'll talk about the roots of antisemitism. Where does antisemitism come from? Why has it persisted for so long? We're going to look inside the mind. We're going to jump inside the brain of the antisemite to understand what is the root and the longevity of anti-Semitism, and what are the valid responses to these questions that I just asked? All of that and more coming up next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. Outsmarting anti-Semitism. I thank you again for joining me, 
and uh, I'm here for the next few minutes to answer questions. Okay, this formally concludes the class. Q&A and open mic is, is, is going to begin now. One thing that I want to mention, or a few things that I want to mention, we have some upcoming, incredible upcoming events and classes. We have a new course for women, a Rosh Chodesh course called Well Connected about Jewish ritual. You do not want to miss that. That's coming up in November. We have the Jewish Book Club coming around once again for a new cycle of books. We have seven, seven books, eight books, six books. We have, we have a full slate of books. Check the website intownjewishacademy.org for the list of books and the dates of conversation. Join the Jewish Book Club. Get your books and get reading. We have a Cafe Chabad coming up, Saturday night event, which you don't want to miss. More details coming soon. We have a Hanukkah jewelry workshop, a Hanukkah uh, community celebration, menorah lightings, and brand new announcement, the Kabbalah of the Matrix. All of these events are coming up in the next few weeks and months, so stay tuned and stay with us in townjewishacademy.org. All right. Now I turn it over to you for questions and comments. Jump in, please. Or just say hi. Either way. <laughs> hi, Ari. Hey. I have a question. Thank you, Rabbi. Pleasure, okay. pleasure. I have a big question, but it's probably for the last two sessions. Okay. By the way, we're going to get into... This is very important because you mentioned the last two sessions, really critical. We're going to be talking about um, forms of anti-Semitism, including and, uh, um, a criticism of Israel and what constitutes anti-Semitism vis-a-vis Israel, which is a very nuanced topic and a very important conversation to have because it doesn't do us good to call everything anti-Semitism either, right? That everything is anti-Semitism is just, you know, is, is, is not healthy. So we have to have a healthy approach, a healthy balance when, when thinking about this. I noticed something in the chat. Let me check the chat for a second. Um, oh, if we think, oh, thank you. Marsha's saying, just want to refresh. That if we think about anti-Semitism often or the Holocaust often, we identify with the victim too much. I, I, I don't think that, that thinking often about anti-Semitism or Holocaust keeps us um, victimized. I think it's how we think about it. How do we think about it? Do we think about it in productive terms or in victim terms? Do we think about it in, okay, what are we doing now to perpetuate the memory of those lost? What are we, what are we doing today to continue carrying the torch of Judaism forward despite the hate, despite the attempt to snuff out Judaism? How are we keeping this moving forward? Think about the Holocaust. Let that drive and motivate. But if we think about it in debilitating terms, in, victim, in victimizing, self-victimizing terms, that's not healthy. And I hope that clarifies. And that's really one of the major ideas that I hope was conveyed in the first half of today's, tonight's conversation is it, it depends. It, it, you know, the, they say the proof is in the pudding, right? Like what, what happens after, after the, the thoughts about anti-Semitism, Holocaust? What do we do next? Do we just cower in fear? Do we call ourselves victims? Do we point fingers at the, at the aggressors and say, you guys are bad? I mean, what, what do we do? Or are we productive? Do we do something productive? Okay. That's the question. Produ the, the, the goal is production, to being, being productive. And that happens when we're not in a victim, victim uh, mentality. It's not easy. And I'm not blaming, by the way, I just be very clear here. I'm not saying that if somebody is victimized and then they feel like a victim, something's wrong with them. It's perfectly normal and natural. It's perfectly normal and natural, which is why we have this course. Because if having a positive, a productive, um, forward-thinking attitude was natural and normal, we wouldn't need outsmarting anti-Semitism. 
it would be natural and normal. But because the nature is when victimized to feel like a victim, we need to now have a conversation about moving, moving perhaps out of that to a product, to more, more productive space. Not criticizing this, that space, but how do we move to a healthier space, a more productive space? So I hope that clarifies. Questions, comments, or we can close out. Ray has her hand raised. Oh, up. hey, Ray. Question, comment, or maybe an errant uh, emoji hand raise. Errant emoji hand raise. Yeah, it happens. It happens. It happens. Um, honestly, I don't even know. Yes. Uh, with respect to the Shoah, perhaps one question that I've never—I I've asked myself, but I've never heard anyone else ask this question. Um, why did Hashem need the six million to be someplace else? And where is that someplace else? And why did he and why did Hashem need them to be there? That's a really good question. I, I don't know that anyone knows that answer. That's one of those uh, I've questions. I've never heard that question asked. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I, 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 um, I appreciate the way you asked that question. I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, we have a lot more to talk about in this course, so let's, let's see how things progress and develop, and maybe we'll bring in the show of the Holocaust into the conversation as we go through the lessons. But certainly a lot to think about, so thanks for, for mentioning. All right, my friends, let's close it out for tonight. Um, I look forward to seeing you next week. Don't forget, you can always mix and match if you want to come on a Thursday. We have bagels. Feel free to join us on a Thursday or a Tuesday night. Either way works. Lila Tov, and of course, go Braves. Stay positive, my friends. Stay positive. We'll see you soon. Take Thank care, you, everybody. Bye -bye. Pleasure. Lila Tov.